Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now going to cover in this audio Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to call this section, 144,000 saints sing a new song and three flying angels. Our context is this, we're still right in the situation right after the seventh trumpet is sounded. We're waiting for the chalice judgments, the final seven bold judgments. We've seen all kinds of stuff. For example, in Revelation 12, we saw Satan thrown down to earth. In Revelation 13, we saw the sea beast and the land beast, the sea beast being the Roman Empire and the land beast being apostate Israel and their machinations against the Lord of Lords, the Lord of Lords, the Almighty God. Chapter 11, we saw the 144,000 Christians sealed, so they're not going to, they're not going to, well, excuse me, the chapter 11, we saw the two witnesses, which is the witnesses of the church carrying out the Old Testament witness of the law and the prophets. We saw the woman and the dragon in the wilderness in chapter 12. She's protected for the coming judgment that's going to come when the seven bowls finish off Jerusalem. So lots has happened since that seventh trumpet was sounded as we wait for the bold judgments to begin. And here's some more stuff that's going to happen before the bold judgments begin. The 144,000 singing a new song. So let's start with Revelation 14.1. Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion. The Lamb, of course, is Jesus. And with him, 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. Now, of course, in the vision, Jesus saw a Lamb. He didn't really see Jesus. He saw a Lamb, who was the symbol of Jesus. Remember, he was standing, but he was slain. So he was as if he were slain, bleeding, I guess. But he was standing up, showing that even though he was slain, he was still alive. Now, John has already given a lot of bad news in this book. We've had the red dragon coming down. We've had the sea beast, Roman Empire, the land beast doing all their bad stuff. All of them arrayed against the church. Now, John is going to pause and give some comfort to the persecuted saints. So the lamb standing on Mount Zion... Mount Zion, of course, is a typical symbol in the Old Testament for the people of God, and in the New Testament, the people of God are the church. For example, in Psalm 2, verses 1 through 7, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord. And his anointed one, let's tear off their change and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And so here we have it. The king is installed on Mount Zion, or he's standing on Mount Zion. Holy mountain, it stands for the church. I will declare the Lord's degree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. All right, so this is a perfect symbol of the church of Jesus Christ because he is now enthroned as king of kings, ruler of all nations, ruler of his church. And now we're going to see the 144,000 who represent his church. We've already mentioned the 144,000 back in chapter 7. The 144,000 doesn't actually mention the seal that's on their head, but they were sealed, which means they were marked out as belonging to God and, and that they were protected by God. They weren't going to undergo the judgment that's falling on the land. Now here, the 144,000 are said in chapter 14, verse 1 of Revelation, are said to have the name of two names written on the Father, the name of the Lamb, His name, and the name of His Father. So we've got the name of the Son, the name of the Father written on their foreheads. Now, Revelation 3.12 says, The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will never go out again. I will write on him the name of my God. There's the name of the Father and the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, and my new name. 
And so the new name, I'm assuming, is Jesus. And, of course, the name of my God is God the Father. So Revelation 3.12 has the name of God the Father, God the Son, as well as the name of the church, the name of the city, the New Jerusalem, which is the new covenant. But basically we have the name of the Father and the Son on Christians' forehead. So let me just summarize that. Revelation 3.2, we've got the name of the Father's and the name of the Son on the Christian's forehead, although the forehead is not explicitly mentioned. So let me read that. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. He will never go out again. I will write on him, and I assume it's on the forehead, the name of my God. There's the name of the Father, dot, 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 and my new name. That would be Jesus' name. He's new because he's in the new covenant now. All right, so that's Revelation 3.12. We've got the name of the Father, the name of the Son, of the Christians, Fard. And now here in our verse, Revelation 14.1, we see the 144,000 having his name, that's the Lamb's name, Jesus' name, the Son's name, and the name of his Father, the Son's Father, that's God the Father, written on their foreheads. So the different parts of the apocalypse are congruent there as far as names written on foreheads. And, of course, a name shows ownership. And characteristics, we have the characteristics of God, we have the characteristics of God the Father and God the Son, and we also are owned by God the Father and God the Son, because the 144,000, as I said earlier in chapter 7, represent the Jewish Christians there, and then after that, the 144,000 went out and there was a vast multitude that came after them back in chapter 7, and so the whole church, both Jewish and Gentiles, are represented here in the vision. 144,000, you got 12 Tribes of Israel times 12 apostles, that's 144. Then you take your intensifier number 10, which means a lot. 10 times 10 is even more. And 10 times 10 times 10 cubed is even more. So you take 1,000, multiply it by 144, which is the, the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, and you got a whole heap of Christians. That's basically how the symbolism works. We go now to Revelation 14, verses 2 and 3. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. That many waters is like a crashing wave in the ocean. If you've ever been to the ocean, you hear how loud it is. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpist playing on their harps. Now, this voice from heaven that John heard is the voice of God the Father, I presume. Verse 3, these these 144,000 and they, the 144,000, sang a new song before the throne, the throne where God was sitting in the vision. And they sang this new song before the four living creatures. The four living creatures represented nature. They were positioned around the throne of God. And the elders were around the four living creatures. And the 24 elders represented the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. 24, 12 tribes, Old Testament, 12 apostles, New Testament. And so all of the church and all of nature, and of course the 144,000 is... Well, I guess you could say the elders are the leaders of the of the people of God, and then 144,000 are the people of God themselves, and they all, and the, it doesn't mention the angels here, but they're out there too, in another verse. They're all singing praises to the Father, and, there's, and, and the 144,000 are singing a new song, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the land. Why? Because it's a new covenant song. You can't sing that song unless you're in the New Covenant. That's why it's called a new song. Nobody can learn it unless you're in the 144,000. Actually, in another part of the apocalypse, the living creatures, the elders, and the angels are all praising God. Here, it doesn't say they're praising God. It's the 144,000 who are singing the new song that nobody can sing except them. Notice that these were Jewish Christians. In my interpretation, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from where? From the land. And, of course, the land is the symbol of Israel. Now we go to verse 
Oh, let me, and of course, if you go back to, I don't have the verse right here in front of me, but back in Revelation 7, after, it's Revelation 7, 9, I remember that. It, it, here it is, I found it right here. Now, the Gentile Christians are included in the vision of the 144,000 in Revelation 7, verse 9. And after this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, or you can't number. 144,000 you can number, but here's a crowd of people you cannot number, and they're from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standard language for the Gentiles. They stood before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches of victory in their hands, white robes of righteousness, so you see, the Gentile Christians are there, as well as the Jewish Christians, the Jewish Christians being the 144,000. Now, in Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, we read this. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. That just shows that they're pure. Not being defiled with women means that they're, I guess, being defiled with women is the number one way that human beings defile themselves, that men defile themselves. But these hadn't. They were virgins, and that symbolizes their purity. And notice here that the 144,000 cannot be literal because here it's 144,000 men who have not defiled themselves with women, and so there would be no women in the 144,000, which seems sort of strange. I'm assuming heterosexuality here. I guess a woman could defile herself with another woman if she was a lesbian, but I don't think they thought like that back then. Only in our perverted United States of Sodom and Gomorrah do we think like that. At any rate, we got 144,000 chaste virgin men following the Lamb. They were purchased. Uh, they were uh, virgins, and we need to point out that in the Old Testament, a virgin is used to describe Zion. Second Kings 19:21. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him: Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. I forgot what who was being spoken against there. But in that verse, we see that daughter Zion, that's Zion is the, is the symbol for Israel. The daughter of Zion is the population of Israel, and she is called a virgin. Why? Because God wants her to be spiritually pure. So a virgin is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality, spiritual purity, no adultery. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. A follower is a disciple and a disciple doesn't ask questions about where the Lamb's leading him. And I'll tell you, you be a Christian for a while, you'd be surprised where the Lord leads you. And you just got to go. I told somebody just the other day, a Chinese young Chinese Christian, I said, hey, you got to quit trying to plan your life out so much. You're on a roller coaster, and that roller coaster is called life, and the tracks are fixed. You can't change where the tracks go. All you got to do is hang on for the ride and see where it takes you. Follow the Lamb. Jesus is in the first seat of the roller coaster. Now, these 144,000 been, have been purchased from among men, in verse 4, as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. Well, of course, firstfruits refers to that Old Testament ritual where the first fruits of the harvest are presented to the priest in the temple, standing for the rest of the crop, saying the firstfruits belong to God, and that symbolizes the rest of the fruits, which also belong to God, and so these men were first fruits to God, which means that they belong to God and they represent a whole bunch of other people coming to God. And that would be the Gentile Christians. I've already mentioned this. The Jewish Christians were the 144,000. They were the first fruits. And then the rest of the, the vast multitude from every nation, tribe, and people and language, those, that was the rest of the harvest. That was the Gentile harvest, which no one could number in Revelation 7 9. Now notice it's first fruits. 
That means that the 144,000 come before the rest of the vast multitude. How do the futurists handle that? They all have the 144,000 as the last fruits at the end of history. But it doesn't say last fruits. It says first fruits. I don't know how they handle it. I don't worry too much about how futurists handle things because I don't believe that they're right in 99% of the cases in which they try to interpret the book. But I will point out, if you're a futurist, you're going to have a trouble with that because first fruits is hard to describe. That is something that happens at the end of time. We go to Revelation 14:5, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Well, there's your symbolism again. They're virgins. They haven't been defiled with women. They don't lie. They're blameless. Here's a quote from Zephaniah 3, 12 and 13 about lying symbolizing spiritual dirtiness. I will leave a meek and humble people among you, and they will take refuge in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel will no longer do wrong or tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. There's your fulfillment of Zephaniah. the people of God. That's the fulfillment. Not the unregenerate people of Israel in the Old Testament. They didn't fulfill it because they were evil. But the true remnant of Israel, the believing remnant of Israel, the church, the new covenant, they're not going to tell lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. We go down to Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Then I saw another angel flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He spoke with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. All right, we finished with 144,000. Now, in verse 6, we're going to start with the three angels. And, and by the way, it's not the three woes. The three woes are the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet. And I don't maybe it's just me, but I, have, I get the three mixed up. This is not three woes here. This is three angels. So when we say in verse 6, when John says in verse 6, I saw another angel, that means another compared to the many, many angels we've already had, we've already seen in the book of Revelation so far. And so here's one more. He's flying high overhead. And this is kind of a special one. He's flying high overhead with the eternal gospel to announce to the inhabitants of the earth. All right, so let me summarize these three angels we're going to see. This first angel that I just mentioned, this another angel he's called, he's the first one of the three. His job is to preach the eternal gospel to all the earth. That's the good news. See, we've had a lot of judgment. Now we get good news. The purpose of all this judgment is to free up the gospel so it can spread out all over the world. The Roman Empire is judged. The apostate Israel kingdom is judged. And then the gospel spreads. So the first angel preaches the eternal gospel. The second angel announces the fall of apostate Israel, which I'll get to in a minute. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. That's the second angel. And the third angel is, announces doom on those who follow the Roman Empire. So Israel goes down with the second angel, implicitly at least with the third angel of the Roman Empire goes down. So you have the... Major theme of the book of Revelation, two persecuting geopolitical entities, kingdoms that persecute the church, Israel and the Roman Empire. They're going down. They're going to be judged with the result that the gospel spreads to all the earth. Now, notice that this first angel, the one that's spreading the gospel, to, announcing the gospel to the whole earth, he's in the midst of heaven, as the King James has, overhead, as the Home of Christian Study Bible has. The angel is up in heaven. And he's crying, woe to the land from mid-heaven. So from heaven down to earth, down to the land. Revelation 8:13. And behold, I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the land by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are at the stand. Now again, I told you you have to distinguish the three, the three woe angels. That's 
the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpet. So that angel was also crying from the midst of heaven, the, the, the woe angel. That would be the first woe. He's crying from the midst of heaven down to the land with judgment. Now this angel is crying from the midst of heaven down to the land for salvation. In other words, before the gospel can be spread to the whole world, there must be judgment on the land. So Revelation 8, first woe, the angel pours judgment on the land of Israel. And now here in Revelation 14, the angel is up in heaven spreading salvation to the world. My version has announced to the world. King James has preached to the world. All right, now we have a lot of scriptures showing that the gospel was to preach to be preached to the whole world before the end came in AD 70, the end of the Jewish geopolitical entity, the rabbinic, blasphemous, persecuting, pharisaical kingdom of the Jews. Matthew 24:14. in the midst of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says this, the, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come, the end of the Jewish nation. And so that's referring to the gospel message that was going out pre-80-70. Now here is some scriptures post-80-70. Well, actually not post, they're all pre-80-70. Talking about the gospel going out through the whole world. Just like this angel in, the, in, the, in John's vision. Romans 1.8, Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported where? In all the world, and that's the Roman world, everywhere, the gospel's being preached, just like this angel announced in John's revelation. Romans 10.18, but I ask, did they not hear? Yes, they did. Their voice has gone out where? To the whole earth, and their words to the ends of the world. Those who are preaching the gospel spread it everywhere, all over the Roman world. Colossians 1.5 and 6, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, period. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing where? All over the world. To every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. That's not in Colossians. I'm adding that. Just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. We read in Colossians 1 verse 23. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard... This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, everywhere. Acts 17, 6, when they did not find them, they dragged Jason, that's the apostles there in, 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 where is this, in Thessalonica, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down. They spread the gospel everywhere, all over the world. And this was predicted by Jesus in the vision. Of course, a lot of this spreading of the gospel over the whole world happened before the vision happened in the 60s. So it might be a little bit of history as well as a little bit of pro prophecy. But the point is, it symbolizes the spreading of the gospel everywhere. As in verse 6, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Verse 7, he spoke with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Well, that judgment, of course, is the judgment on AD 70. The seven trumpets that we have already looked at in previous audios, they were the proclamations of judgment, as Chilton says. The seven chalices, the seven bowls, are applications of the judgment, which is coming later. We go now to Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, this Babylon the Great is apostate Jerusalem. I'm going to show that to you 
with a reasonable certitude beyond too much of a doubt. Unfortunately, preterists split on whether that Babylon the Great is Rome or Jerusalem. It could be either one, according to some people. Like Jay Adams is an Orthodox preterist. He says it's Rome, and I think that this minority view amongst Orthodox preterists is wrong. Here's what the argument in favor of Rome is. Well, first of all, of course, Rome is one of the persecuting entities of the church that the sea beast, of course, was written about in chapter 13, and so it makes some sense to say that Babylon the Great could refer to Rome in favor of that option. First Peter 5.13 says this, Peter says this, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And that assumes Peter's in Babylon. Well, the, the, there's a tradition that says Peter was in Rome when he wrote First Peter, but that's tradition. But as David Chilton points out, Peter was probably in Jerusalem there. He lived and had his ministry in Jerusalem his whole life. Peter, at the end of First Peter, sent greetings from Mark and Silas, and Mark and Silas lived in Jerusalem, not Rome. So that's a weak read to rely on to say that Babylon the Great is Rome. Not to mention the fact when we get to, what is it, chapter 17, we have the Whore of Babylon. If you say the Whore of Babylon is Rome, she's Babylon, you know, Babylon the Great. She's the Whore of Babylon. If Babylon is Rome and she's riding on the back of the beast, the sea beast, well, you got Rome riding on Rome, which makes no sense to me. But it does make sense to think that the apostate Israel is riding on the back of Rome because they relied on Rome. We have no king but Caesar. So anyway, we're going to assume that this Babylon the Great is Jerusalem. I'm going to show it to you right now. Here's some scripture showing that Babylon the Great is Jerusalem. Babylon the Great is Jerusalem. Revelation 11.8. Their dead bodies, that's the two witnesses, will lie in the main street of the great city. All right. So we have a city here. It's called the Great, G-R-E-A-T, Great City, which figuratively is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, where were the two witnesses, Lord, crucified? That's obviously Jerusalem, right? So Revelation 11.8 says, Great City is where the Lord was crucified. Therefore, the Great City is Jerusalem. All right, so no problem there. The Great City is Jerusalem. Now let's show that Babylon is the Great City. Revelation 14.8 that's where we are now. And another, a second angel followed saying, it has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. Well, now we have a city called Babylon. It's also called Great in 14.8. And in Revelation 11.8, we have the great city is Jerusalem. Well, okay. By the way, in Revelation 14.8, it says it has fallen Babylon the Great. Some versions have Babylon the Great City, which would make my point even stronger. But unfortunately, the city is not in the Greek, so I left it out. To be fair, but it doesn't matter. Babylon the Great is the great city. Now we go to Revelation 16:9 to show another scripture showing that Babylon is the great city. Revelation 16:19, the great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the Great was remembered in God's presence. So there, Babylon the Great is explicitly compared to a great city. All right, so we've established Revelation 11:8 that. The great city is Jerusalem, and we've established in Revelation 14, 8 and 16, 19 that the great city is Babylon. Well, if the great city is Jerusalem and the great city is Babylon, two things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. So if Jerusalem is equal to the great city and Babylon is the great city, then guess what? Jerusalem is Babylon. Babylon the great. Now, she, apostate Israel, has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. This whore... This Babylon the Great, she's called a whore later on. <laughs> I'll just advance things a little and call her a whore. 
she inflames the nations of the world to lust after her. That's, I'm saying she's a whore because of the passion. She says, all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. There you have an image of sexual passion, immoral sexual passion, which of course always stands for spiritual idolatry. Let's look at Romans 2.17. Well, the next question is to ask, how did apostate Israel call all the nations to lust after her? Well, remember, Israel was the only nation... They were the, I don't want to say the inventors of monotheism. They were the great proponents of monotheism in the ancient world, which was totally pagan and polygamous. Uh, Not polygamous, I'm sorry, polytheist. And so Israel is holding out to the world this standard of monogamy. And yet, how do they act? And what kind of shame do they bring on the idea of the one true God, the the monotheist one true God? Let's look at Romans 2.17. Now, if Paul says this to the Romans. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, verse 19, and if you're convinced that you are a God for the blind, that would be the blind Gentiles, a light to those in darkness, those Gentiles are in darkness, verse 24, Romans 2. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because of the way they're acting. And so they seduce the Gentile nations into idolatry by proclaiming that they're the true God, that they represent Yahweh, the one true God, and yet all they do is do the opposite. They seduce people to be immoral with her, seduce the Gentile nations, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. We go now to Revelation 14, verses 9, 10, and 11. Then another angel, a third one. All right, just to rehash the angels. The first angel was the angel proclaiming from mid-heaven a gospel to all the world. The second angel was the angel saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, which is apostate Israel. Now we go to the third angel, and we're going to talk about, we're going to deal with a sea beast, which is the Roman Empire. Revelation 14, verses 9, 10, and 11. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast, that's the sea beast, well... It's actually ambiguous as to which beast it is. I think it's the sea beast, but I'll, I'll hold that for a minute. If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and, and in the presence of the lamb. Little Jesus, meek and mild like a lamb. Unfortunately, there's a lot of fire and brimstone around this meek lamb here. People being tormented in hell. People drinking the wine of the wrath of God. Yeah, little Jesus, meek and mild. Verse 11, and the smoke of their torment. That's those who worship the beast in the image of the beast. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Now, Chilton says this beast is the land beast. He's the one in chapter 13, verse 17, says that he calls the mark to be given the mark of the sea beast should be given so that no one should buy or sell. And he's mentioned right here after the Babylon, the great is said to be Jerusalem. And so it makes sense that the sea beast is the land beast. Well, if Chilton is right, then if anyone worships the land beast and his, the land beast image, it doesn't mean the image of the land beast. It means the image of the sea beast because it was the image of the sea beast that the land beast created in the last chapter. Well, I think that's a little bit convoluted in my opinion it just looks like the sea if anyone worships the sea beast and the sea beast image because if you're worshiping the image of the sea beast it's the same thing as worshiping the sea beast so if you are worshiping the roman empire by caving into all their pagan idolatrous practices well uh, you're going to pay for it 
And if you pinch the incense to the Roman emperor as God, well, you deny Jesus. And, of course, the mark on his forehead or his hand is the mark of the beast, which is the 666 we talked about. And 666 stands for Nero, who is the head of the Roman Empire. So basically, the mark stands for the Roman Empire. So basically, if you say that you belong to the Roman Empire, to the pagan, idolatrous empire, you're going to drink of the wine of the wrath of God. All right, the land of Israel has already received the wrath of the second angel. Now, the third angel is saying, well, you want some more wrath? The sea beast is going to receive the wrath eventually, and anybody who is marked by that sea beast and is far on his hand is going to suffer the wrath of God, and you're going to burn. The smoke of your torment is going to go up forever and ever. Now, again, this is in, an, in a vision. I don't know what hell is like. You know, some places it says that hell is eternal darkness. Other places it says the fires burn forever. These are all symbols. I don't know what it's actually like because darkness and fire don't exactly go together. So I don't know. And this is a vision too. So I don't know whether it's act- people actually burning. But, but it's not going to be pleasant. I can tell you that right now. It won't be pleasant. Now these people who have got the mark of the beast are going to have to drink the wine of the wrath of God. Here's what Moses Stewart, 19th century comment- who wrote a 19th century commentary on the apocalypse, In 1845, he says this, God is often said to give the cup of inflammation or indignation to nations whom he is about to destroy. Persons intoxicated are unable to resist those who assail them. So they are devoted to irremediable destruction. So God gets them drunk and then bam, he destroys them, burns them up. Now this image of the smoke of their torment is taken from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire and brimstone. Genesis 19:28. he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw the smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. I think this Abraham's looking down there. Smoke of a furnace. Verse 11, we have the smoke of their torment. So you see the imagery is close. How about the fire and brimstone? Brimstone, of course, is sulfur. It comes from the brim of a volcano. So these people who've sold, them, sold their souls to the Roman Empire will be tormented with fire and brimstone. Now, I've already mentioned this before. I'm going to mention it again. The lamb is sitting, sitting there, standing there watching all of this. He's watching people undergo the wrath of God. He's watching the smoke of their torment going up forever and ever. Does John show any bit of embarrassment about that? Does he say, oh my goodness, that, that derogates from the love of Jesus. And so now it looks like that Jesus doesn't love people. No, John feels no embarrassment to see Jesus, meek and mild as a lamb, watching his enemies roast in hell. Now again, that lamb is not supposed to be a symbol of meekness is supposed to be a symbol of what jesus did on the cross he died as a sacrifice i don't know how in the world people like rob bell hell deniers and bart ehrman these damnable heretics who go around trashing the faith i don't know how in the world they can read the book of revelation and say well you know hell doesn't really exist we just gonna cease our existence as bart ehrman says we just gonna cease to exist there's nothing to worry about yeah well dream on revelation 14 verses 12 and 13. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Well, he says here, what's he referring to? Well, I think he's referring to the next verse. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. The idea is if you know that you're going to, it's blessed to die because you're going to live forever. Well, then you can persevere knowing that you can go through all the persecution and all the garbage because you're going to live forever. Now, I've never been in that situation where I had to rely on my eternal state to take my thoughts away from current conditions where I thought I would die. I've never done that before. 
But these martyrs had. Many Christians out throughout history have done that. They've said, well, nothing here in this life anymore, but I'm going to heaven, so, hey, I'll persevere. I won't backslide like Bart Ehrman. I won't spit on Jesus like Rob Bell. Well, maybe he doesn't spit on... Well, he, he makes a mockery out of what Jesus said about hell, so he's metaphorically spitting on Jesus. No. People like that who are in extremity of persecution, they persevere because they know they're going to live forever. I mean, watch these Christian martyrs dying at the stake as they're being burnt up and the things they say and how they look. Look at Stephen as he was persecuted to death. Folks, Jesus overcame death and Christians have overcome death with him. And that's something no other religion can do. And all the idiot atheists and agnostics can say now is, well, our life is just going to disappear. Oh, that's a wonderful thought. What have I got to look forward to? A life of pain and struggle and sickness and, and toil and relationships breaking in this life, and then I just disappear. Well, hey, you can take that kind of secular religion and shove it, buddy, because I don't want to have nothing to do with that, because I'm going to live forever. I have eternal life. And by the way, when you say that your life just peters out at the end, you're calling Jesus a liar. Because how many times did he say, I have come to give you eternal life? Eternal means it lasts beyond your physical lifetime. Let me finish up here in verse 13. Well, let, let me just read 13 again. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They die from now on because the persecution is coming to seven bowls. Yes, says the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors so that their deeds follow with them. Of course, he's referring to the martyrs who might have to die in the, in the persecution that's coming because we know that Jesus never promised that nobody's going to physically die. That can happen. But if they do, they rest from their labors. They rest when they die. Our previous verse said that, verse 11, Revelation 14, there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in his image. But in verse 12, verse 13, it says, we may have rest from our labors, for their deeds follow with them. In other words, their good deeds that followed from their being saved, they're going to be recognized when we get to heaven, when we rest from our labors. A deed is something you do. You don't have to do anything more when you get to heaven. You can rest from your labors for your endurance of all the persecution and the garbage the world has got to throw at you. You can rest from all that. You're going to win. And that's what the book of Revelation is about, is dominion victory, dominion and victory. For Christians who win, who overcome, and who are not beaten. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm finished with chapter 14 of Revelation, verses 1 through 13. The 144,000 singing a new song, and the three angels pronouncing a gospel for all the nations, and judgment on Israel, judgment on those who follow the, the Roman Empire and its paganism. And so now we will prepare for our next audio. In Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20, our next audio. We will see the Son of Man harvesting the land, and it's not going to be a pleasant harvest. There's going to be a lot of folks thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. I hope you stay tuned for that edifying spectacle in our next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.